and kindness. Father of sovereign grace, we come before You with thanksgiving this morning and we ask You that You would, even now, equip and enable us to do all that we are called to do and to be all that we've been called to be. For we pray this in the great name of our King and Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. The German historian Otto Clausen has written that Adolf Hitler was possessed by a host of malignant obsessions. We know, of course, of his bizarre racial theories that led him to have an obsession with ridding the world of the Jews and purifying the Aryan race. This, in turn, led to an obsession with nationalism and a peculiar form of socialism, which led him further into obsessions with the occult. But, in addition to these obsessions... He was particularly obsessed with his enemies. He made serious study of all of the men that he felt opposed him, both within the German-speaking world and without. Ultimately, he dismissed FDR as a weakling, Stalin as a madman. He feared Winston Churchill, but he believed that Britain was... So ensnared in its own foolishness that Churchill would, despite his soaring oratory, always be a marginal figure. But there was one man that he feared above all of the rest. According to Clausen, he was obsessed with him and ultimately took steps in the war that ultimately forced Germany into a corner and boded ill for its war effort. Now, what's interesting is that this man had been dead for 20 years before Adolf Hitler even invaded the man's homeland, the Netherlands. The man was Abraham Kuyper, pastor, and theologian, educator, and journalist, the founder of the Free University in Amsterdam, the, uh, the man who established the Daily Standard, the most popular daily newspaper in the Netherlands, as well as one of the most popular monthly magazines, the Herald. He was the founder of the first modern political party, for the Dutch, as well as, ultimately, the man who rose to the place of prime minister at the turn of the 20th century. He was a remarkable man in a host of different ways, but for him to be an obsession of Hitler seems peculiar at best. Clausen, quite frankly, is unable to explain it. He chalks it up as one of the many madnesses that claimed the mind of Adolf Hitler. 
I'd like to suggest to you this morning that there was more than a little wisdom in Hitler's fear. One of the things that the Third Reich ran into when it invaded the little country of Holland was a stiff resistance that it did not expect. Indeed, the military plans for the German high command included a a simple walk straight from the border into Rotterdam and Amsterdam, and instead they encountered five days of fierce fighting. And then following that, four long years of stiff, recalcitrant resistance. Indeed, according to most histories of the Second World War, the Dutch resistance with its counterintelligence network, its domestic sabotage teams, and its communications abilities to and for the Allies made it the fiercest resistance in all of the occupied territories of the German Reich. They built networks through small-scale, decentralized cells. They forged ration cards. They passed intelligence on to the British and to the Americans. Uh, They published underground newspapers. They sabotaged telephone and telegraph lines as well as railroads. And they hid and sheltered refugees and enemies of the Nazis, the Onderdijkers, those who were underground, the Jews, and the underground resistance. And in all of this, created nightmares for Hitler and his generals. The fact is, is that the Dutch underground was almost completely the fruit of the work of this man that Hitler feared. Not that he set it up, not that he was far-sighted enough to imagine a day when His students and his students' students uh, would be scrambling through the night, uh, blowing up bridges and interrupting communications from the German high command. Instead, his vision was far loftier and ultimately for the Germans' designs far more insidious. Because what Abraham Kuyper did was he changed a culture. He changed the very fabric of the nation. It's one of the reasons why six months into the German occupation of the Netherlands, Hitler issued a command that every single student who had ever graduated from Abraham Kuyper's school, the Free University of Amsterdam, was to be hunted down, arrested, and treated as a Jew. That's high praise. But the fact is, is that when Abraham Kuyper emerged as a leader in the 1870s, the evangelicals in the Netherlands had become a marginalized minority. Ten years later, they had two mighty journalistic outlets, a political party, an uncompromised church, and their own university. Ten years after that, 
they had formed a confessional coalition that ultimately led the nation for the 50 years preceding World War II. Abraham Kuyper was not just influential. He reshaped and reformed every structure of Dutch culture, creating for it a kind of a decentralized network of what he called pillars, or zelzeling, that ultimately caused the nation to resist fiercely an irresistible force. This vision for the reshaping of culture, Kuiper himself, during his lifetime, uh, said, that was rooted in one simple notion. It is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Meaning He is not simply a, a Lord over the religious sphere of life. He is Lord over all. In 1880, in his famous inaugural address, at the launching of the Free University of Amsterdam, he put it this way. There is not one square inch over the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, Mine. It is Mine, Christ says. My crown rights, my covenant dominion, it is mine. Art, music, literature, ideas, education, economics, life in the home, life in the streets, commerce, international affairs, the way we care for the poor, the way that we deal with oppressors, all of it, Jesus Christ is Lord over all of it. Over all of it, he says, mine. This unrelenting, uncompromising vision was not unique to Abraham Kuyper. As confessional Christians, we make the declaration every day, at every turn, Jesus Christ is Lord. But what Abraham Kuyper did was he lived uh, that credo with no exceptions. And he hammered it out in extraordinary ways that ultimately changed the shape of his nation. I'm often asked by people when I talk about Abraham Kuyper and its great exploits as to why it is that post-war the Holland seemed to tank so fast. Why the coalition that, that Abraham Kuyper had forged, this remarkable coalition between Catholics and Calvinists, why it seemed to fall apart in the days following the war. And I think that the answer is simple. Adolf Hitler. He understood the threat and he hunted down every leader that Kuyper had trained, Every institution that he had built up, he attempted to crush. Didn't go away entirely, which is why Holland has remained a deeply divided and pluralistic state to this day. 
But Hitler understood that he had a fierce enemy in this man who had been dead for two decades before he even launched his military campaigns. It would behoove us to understand what it was that Abraham Kuyper understood and what it was that Abraham Kuyper's philosophy did in the nightmares of Adolf Hitler. Kuyper wasn't always God's Renaissance man, as he has been often called. In fact, he was a very typical Dutch intellectual when he emerged from the university in 1863. His godly upbringing had been despoiled by modernist philosophies and modernist theologies, and he entered into his first little pastorate in the country town of Beast with a spoiled faith and all of the ambitions of the typical modernist at the advent of the great industrial age. But there in his little parish church, he met some remarkable people. People who actually believed the Bible. People who actually lived like it. People who actually had lives woven together. He saw there a community of faith that actually looked like covenant. Where every single person was responsible to someone and every single person was responsible for someone. It was um, like stepping through the wardrobe to Narnia. Or back in time to... Uh, to uh, Some place like Mitford. It was uh, it was an idyllic place where where Kuiper was loved out of his obstinate and foolish arrogance and right into the arms of the Savior. It was as the pastor of the little parish church there in the village of Bees that he uh, he came to know Christ. The glories of the gospel, the power of the gospel to change the world and the textures of daily life itself. He began a renewed study of the Word of God and with great fervor he began to articulate the truth of the gospel and of a comprehensive worldview of Christ's Lordship over the totality of life. Ultimately, he would move on, uh, first to uh, one larger city, and then finally to Amsterdam in 1870, all along the way, gaining renown as a great orator and an intellectual, and as an unflinching advocate of the authority of Jesus Christ over every institution and over the totality of life. As you might expect, as was the story in a host of other countries at the same time, everywhere the gospel went forth, a great collision occurred between the modernists who had gained control of the Dutch church and the fledgling evangelical movement which by the 1870s, Abraham Kuyper now led. Ultimately, it resulted in an expulsion in the church. 
so that Abraham Kuyper was forced to start all over again, establishing new parishes and planting new churches, building new structures along confessional lines. It was during this time that he began to see that if Dutch life was ever to change, then everything must change. The way the Dutch received their information, the way the Dutch were trained up from the cradle, the way the uh, Dutch uh, understood art and music and literature and ideas and how those things were woven together into the fabric of civilization. He began to glimpse the possibility of really and truly reforming the Dutch nation. And then ultimately the world. Now, lots of us have this kind of vision. Then there are lots of very gifted people around us. What set Abraham Kuyper apart was that he simply rolled up his sleeves and he got to it. He began to work. He began to work without consideration as to whether or not he would actually succeed. Which, according to uh, James McGoldrick, one of the uh, biographers of uh, Kuiper, says, is what enabled him to forge ahead so freely and so joyfully. The thing was that, that Abraham Kuiper was not a Renaissance man simply because he was so gifted, McGoldrick says. He was a Renaissance man because he was just bullheaded enough and just joyous enough to enjoy the failures that he inevitably met along the way. <laughs> At the root of it all, McGoldrick says, uh, Kuiper was possessed of a single idea. If Christ is Lord, then this is right. And nothing should deter us in the face of that kind of confidence. And so... Starting over with brand new baby institutions at every turn. Brand new church, brand new newspaper, brand new magazine, brand new publishing house, brand new university, brand new everything. He set out to change the world. And he believed that it was God's will. And he believed that God would bring it to pass. And so he rolled up his sleeves and he went to work. And oh, did he ever work. Over the course of the next 30 years, he published more than 90 books. And these weren't slim little paperbacks. <laughs> We're talking about encyclopedias, systematic theologies. He undertook an eight-year-long a 22-volume-long discursus, commentary, and explication of the Heidelberg Catechism, while publishing, on an average, of three or four books every year in the interim. Meanwhile, he was... Uh, preaching and teaching, holding a seat, first in the lower assembly and then later in the upper assembly, finally as prime minister 
1901, while teaching his courses at the university, traveling widely and lecturing around the globe, and strategizing at every turn with those who would carry on his vision. He was a start-aholic. And he couldn't stop. Ultimately, his remarkable mind and his remarkable institution spun off a, a veritable cottage industry of ideas. They propounded the notions of common grace in remarkable and innovative new ways. His vision of pillarism, that uh, Zerzling uh, notion that, uh, that, that every uh, single segment of society should build its own institutions in a kind of a pluralistic marketplace where the best of the ideas would ultimately prevail and win the day. He had remarkable ideas about the economy. He was an advocate of what G.K. Chesterton called distributivism. He had a powerful notion of antithesis, that, that notion first pioneered in the scriptures and then later expanded and expounded by Augustine in his masterwork, The City of God. Uh, but perhaps the three most significant things in terms of a comprehensive worldview of Christ's lordship that Abraham Kuyper was able to uh, thoroughly exposit in his lifetime uh, were the ideas of sphere sovereignty, worldviewishness, and the Theta Morgana of modernity. Now, by sphere sovereignty, what uh, what Kuiper really meant was that God, in his redemptive economy, has established the world in accordance with overlapping, checking and balancing jurisdictions. There are separate authorities. There are separate responsibilities. And societies go awry when these authorities, these spheres, are either blurred or obscured. When the family assumes responsibilities that actually belong to the church. Or when the church assumes responsibilities that are actually the responsibility of the family. Or when the state attempts to supersede them all. In declaring Christ's lordship over the totality of life, he was also inclined to declare that Christ has established his authority in such a way that his subordinates should cooperate, checking and balancing one another in particular ways. By declaring this, he automatically became an enemy of the messianic state. But he also checked the ambitions of those who would focus exclusively on the authority of the church or on the authority of fathers or mothers in the family. He asserted Christ's lordship over it all. And if Christ was Lord, then his directives, 
about where lines should be drawn, distinctions should be made, authority should be established, was an essential aspect of the declaration of the gospel. In 1892, he made a a famous speech entitled, Blurring the Boundaries, in which he said that virtually all of the modern ills came down to this. Either the state was claiming authority that was not the state's, or it was abdicating authority where it had legitimate authority. All the ills of the modern world come down to this. The church has not had the backbone to stand against the state. Or the family has been left unprotected and parental prerogatives have been stolen so that society as God had intended it was no longer able to function under the Lordship of Christ. And therefore, new principles and new ideas and new authorities and new sovereignties and new messiahs had been raised up in in Christ's stead. By establishing the principle of sphere sovereignty, Abraham Kuyper enabled the Dutch people to know real authority when they saw it, real tyranny when they saw it, and they understood how to resist it. Abraham Kuyper had instilled in the people a basic gospel principle, and Adolf Hitler feared it. And well, he should have. Abraham Kuyper said, the beginning of freedom is knowing where the lines are drawn. He said, liberty comes from this, knowing how to make distinctions, where walls are to be built and where walls are to be torn down. Jesus Christ is Lord over every institution. And it is Jesus Christ who determines which institutions are to have authorities in which areas. How they are to carry out their responsibilities. Which of the jurisdictions belong to whom. But making this kind of practical application from the doctrine of the Lordship of Christ, Abraham Kuyper was forging in the Dutch without even necessarily confessional adherence, a vision for how the world works. Secondly, Abraham Kuyper had this notion that the Lordship of Jesus Christ necessarily means that we must all come under the bar of Scripture In every single area of our thought, of our habits, of our lives, we should be unflinching in yielding ourselves to Christ's Lordship in every single detail of life. He used a peculiar German word to describe this notion, Weltschung. It literally means worldviewishness, a comprehensive vision of everything. Part of Bill Clinton's confusion is that he did not know what is, is. Abraham Kuyper did. 
She did because she understood the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ over every single detail of life. As a result, she analyzed every problem, every dilemma through the lens of the authority of Christ's revealed purposes in the world, in the Scriptures. Someone uh, told Kuiper of the little incident that occurred in the White House when Teddy Roosevelt, a man of Dutch descent and thus dear to Kuiper's heart, the son of the great nation, Teddy was, uh, was wrestling over a, a particular foreign policy difficulty. It seems that Venezuela was defaulting on its debts to Germany and Britain and France. And as a result, the European powers had sent warships to collect on debts or to take over and reform the banking system. The Monroe Doctrine had never actually been enforced by the United States. Teddy Roosevelt wanted to enforce it, but he would not go simply on the authority of the Monroe Doctrine. After all, it had no precedent and never been actually applied. So Roosevelt called together a host of his military and foreign policy experts to meet him in the White House. When they arrived, they were shown into a room and they found Roosevelt uh, poring over a series of large books spread out all over the conference room table at the White House. They stood there rather uncomfortably for quite some time. Finally, uh, someone cleared his throat to let the president know that they were there. He was still busily poring over all of the volumes before him. Without even looking up, Roosevelt said, Well, men, don't just stand there. Come and help me. What he was pouring over were a series of Bibles and concordances and a Bible commentaries. As he explained to them later, he wanted to enforce the Monroe Doctrine, but if it wasn't in the Bible, he didn't have the authority to do it. Oh, wouldn't it be great if war councils about Iraq were handled like that? Abraham Kuyper heard that story and he said, Yes, that's it! Uh, later, uh, when uh, Francis Schaeffer in 1980 would write his Christian Manifesto, and begin with that thunderous phrase, over the last 80 years or so, Christians have become more or less concerned about various uh, areas of American life. Pornography and abortion and choice in schools. But because they see things in bits and pieces uh, rather than in totals, they have made little headway. He was thinking in terms of Abraham Kuyper's 
worldviewishness. He was lamenting the loss of Abraham Kuyper's vision of a comprehensive worldview of Christ's lordship. When Hans Ruckmacher would write his uh, remarkable work, Modern Art in the Death of a Culture, and he would lament the fact that that Christians, along with all of the rest of moderns, uncomfortably followed along in the sway of the destruction of our aesthetic values. He was lamenting the loss of the Kuyperian vision of a comprehensive worldview of Christ's Lordship applied to the totality of life. In 1898, Abraham Kuyper came to the United States to give a series of lectures at Princeton. The Stone Lectures, by their title, appear to be arcane and limited in their scope, called Lectures in Calvinism. But a quick look at the table of contents causes you to realize that this is uh, not the sort of Calvinism that you've probably uh, become acquainted with, that contentiousness, uh, that cage stage of Christianity uh, that, uh, that we often attribute to those who hold, hold to uh, the Reformed doctrines of sovereign grace. Instead, what you find is this comprehensive vision of how the Reformed faith should actually change the way we look at and the way we do all of the disciplines of life. I love the chapter on art. Kuyper was no artist, but he understood that if Jesus Christ was Lord, if there was indeed a comprehensive worldview application of Christ's Lordship, then one of the forefront issues of our day is how we sing or don't. How we play or don't. How we dance or don't. How we eat or don't. Jesus Christ is the Lord over the totality of life, and we should be unflinching in the application of that Lordship in every single detail. As he pressed home the claims of Christ's sovereignty, the Dutch nation was shaken to its core, transformed. Obviously, not everyone in the Dutch nation bought it. Redemption did not fall upon every human heart. But what Kuiper did was he so established the categories. He changed the terms of the debate. And the result was that even those who did not believe, believed. As James McGoldrick explains, when a comprehensive Christian worldview is applied in the whole of life, even those who protest the claims of the gospel must live in accordance with its categories. The Kuiper not only provided the grid of sphere sovereignty and comprehensive world-viewishness. He also provided the Dutch with a fierce and unflinching critique of modernity. 
He called modernity the Theta Morgana, using that Arthurian notion of a malignancy at the heart of civilization itself. Long before postmodernists began to critique the failures of a mechanized, ideological, systemic, structural system of uh, raw rationality, Abraham Kuyper declared that modernity was inhuman and would ultimately collapse under the weight of its own absurdity. He called for the Dutch to organize their lives in a fashion that was all out of fashion with the modernists. And again, uh, the result was that the Dutch became Adolf Hitler's greatest nightmare. Tiny little nation. Handful of people. No natural resources. No wilderness to run off and hide in. Just spinster sisters like Betsy and Corey Tin Boom. A handful of fierce Kuyperians who believed that they could not, should not, would not give in because, in the end, Christ is Lord. In very practical terms, the lessons from Abraham Kuyper's vision of a comprehensive worldview based on Christ's lordship are drawn directly from his, his own drive and, and personality. He believed, for instance, that if you see a thing, you're probably called to it. Most of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. There are somewhere along the way, you read a book. And you said, this is it. This is it. This is what I want for my children. This is what I want for my grandchildren. This is exactly what our church needs. And so you went running to your pastor, to all of your neighbors, and you said, you've got to read this book. Maybe you were crazy enough to buy a box of them and hand them out. <laughs> and some of the people who read the book said, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> some of the people who read the book nitpicked. Well, I, I, I'm not really sure I like this sense of humor <laughs> oh, well, this is a little harsh, don't you think? And you're thinking to yourself, but this is it. It's so clear, I see it. Don't you see it? See, what you encountered there is the fact that you were called to it. Maybe they weren't. When Abraham Kuyper saw it, acted on it. He believed that he was called to it. He believed in vision, calling, faith. It's an outworking of the means of grace that, that Christ, who is Lord over all, pours out howsoever He wishes. 
This went hand in hand with what he called the irregardless principle. It's even more unpronounceable in Dutch. But essentially what it means is that it doesn't matter if you have the resources, if you have enough people behind you, if you've got encouragement along the way. If you are called to it, you're called to it. And regardless of the circumstances. This goes hand in hand with the principle of going with what you've got. He believed firmly that that old principle of missionaries, articulated so well by J. Hudson Taylor when he said, God's work done in God's way shall never lack for God's supply. Even when it looks like it's lacking for God's supply. There are difficult providences. In fact, the notion that Jesus Christ is Lord necessarily means that His good providence is meted out in accord with His good purposes in His good time. Kuiper was satisfied with that. It was enough to go on. So he was willing to go with what he had. Now, if any career counselor had sat down with Abraham Kuyper early in life, they would have seen that he had some sort of vision ADD. They would have put him on Ritalin and told him to slow himself down, to stick to one thing, uh, to not cast his vision so widely, and to get his feet back down on the ground. You've probably heard that before, too. But Abraham Kuyper believed in providence. He believed that God had placed him at this time, in this place, for this purpose. He knew there needed to be a university. Nobody else was establishing it, so he did. He knew that there needed to be a daily newspaper so that the Dutch could receive news in a lively fashion in accordance with good principles of journalism, but which portrayed the truth from a Christian worldview perspective. So he started one, and then a magazine, and then a political party. He ultimately was at the forefront of reforms in a host of arenas. He had this vast vision for a a kind of a scientific advance through technological developments that would not push forward the agenda of modernity, but which would be human-scaled and that would benefit the whole of mankind. He was willing to go with what he had. Which ultimately meant that he had to run toward the roar. He had to have courage. He had to have boldness. He had to have initiative. And he taught his students and his disciples and all of those who came after them that they had to have it too. When you know that you're called, you know that God's providence has placed the opportunity before you. And you hesitate. Kuiper believe you lose the day. 
And so Kuiper was constantly telling his students, and all those around you are saying, wait, stay, hold back. Now, as you run ahead of them, they're saying, no, 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 I said, wait, stay, hold back. And you're just out of hearing distance and you hear them shouting, wait, stay, hold back. That is when you need to run all the harder. Because, you see, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, Mine. This ultimately led him to embrace the distinction between those old German notions of Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft. Gesellschaft is the quintessence of modernity. It's, it's the mechanism for change which involves structural, mechanical, ideological means. It looks for corporate structures in accordance with mechanical and structural and ideological rationality. He believed that the institutions that God raised up were always based upon Gemeinschaft. Kind of organic. A, a kind of organism. A kind of covenant. A kind of relational network. He believed that that all ministry is ultimately personal. That all change, all transformation, all reformation is necessarily personal. Uh, this enabled him to make the distinction between reforming a society and revolutionizing it. As a result... Uh, Kuiper was not the madman, the visionary ADD that many thought him to be. He actually uh, believed in incremental change, multi-generational change, uh, change uh, that fitted into the real world without the destruction of existing institutions. He, he believed that it was possible to come alongside uh, existing structures and uh, work hard to see their slow transformation through the permutation of the gospel by the application of the Lordship of Jesus Christ to every single detail in life. That's why his changes were enduring and lasting. Uh, they were rooted in real dollars and cents. He was a reformer, not a revolutionary. He didn't come to tear down the institutions of the past, uh, but rather to come alongside them, to erect new ones, to refurbish the old ones, and to, uh, to see in continuity with the trajectory of God's redemption across all of time how He would change the world without destroying it first. This is a vision, if comprehensively caught, 
comprehensively believed, can and must throw fear into the hearts of every tyrant. Adolf Hitler understood it. His greatest enemy had been dead for 20 years, and he was right at least this one time in his obsession. What would it be like if in modern America we were to actually believe with this fervency and walk in the richness of this notion that there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, Mine. We, we've already begun to see the fruits of it, haven't we? A boldness in our children. A, a remarkable outpouring of, of ability. We would have never dreamed could have emerged from our kids. Generation after generation of that kind of impact. What will it mean? Gospel means. Done for gospel ends. Must ultimately result in the fruitfulness the bounty, the glorious harvest of the Gospel. That's what Abraham Kuyper believed. That's what he stood upon. And ultimately, that is how he was able to bring terror into the crumpled pillow sobbing of Adolf Hitler in the final days of World War II, though he had been in the grave and gone on to his eternal reward in heaven as some... 28 years prior. As we look at all of the difficulties that face us as a civilization, I would say that the chief of them is that we did not heed the warnings of Ruckmacher, then before him, the warnings of Schaefer, and before him, his mentor, Abraham Kuyper, to the degree that we could say, in the totality of life, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, Mine! If you see it, you're probably called to it. Regardless of the circumstances. So go with what you've got. Run toward the roar. Always build into people. Not ideologies and institutions. And God will ensure that in the end, it's all going to make sense. It's all going to make sense. German historian Otto Clausen ends his little section on Abraham Kuyper and Adolf Hitler's obsession with him with this remark. It is probably unexplainable to any who have not tasted 
with the power of the Dutch Christian worldview. But the fact is, is that a dead man undid the Third Reich as surely as the great alliance of FDR, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin. Clausen could not understand it. I pray that we would. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, Mine. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may we be of such a mind and heart to believe. To believe in Your Lordship. To believe in Your sovereignty. To believe in Your authority. To believe in Your good providence. And to live like it. Raise up sure foundations, Lord God, in this day and age. Change the world. And use us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.